Thank you to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode. BetterHelp is the world's largest therapy service, and it's 100% online, so you can access it from anywhere in the world. With BetterHelp, you can tap into a network of over 30,000 licensed and experienced therapists who can help you with a wide range of issues. To get started, you just answer a few questions about your needs and preferences in therapy. That way, BetterHelp can match you with the right therapist from their network. Then you can talk to your therapist however you feel comfortable, whenever it's convenient for you. If your therapist isn't the right fit for any reason, you can switch to a new therapist with no additional cost. With BetterHelp, you, got, you get the same professionalism and quality you expect from in office therapy, but with a therapist who is custom-picked for you, more scheduling flexibility, and at a more affordable price. Get 10% of your first month at betterhelp.com slash how to survive society. That's better com slash how to survive society. Hello, survivors. This is your girl, Abby Ayola Williams, and you're now listening to How to Survive Society. How to Survive Society is a weekly podcast that features survivors. These are people that have been through the ringers in life. They've been through hell and back, but they choose to stay positive. They choose to win. They choose to thrive and they choose to survive. So let's get right into it. Hello, survivors. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of How to Survive Society. Today, I have a very special guest. Her name is Victoria Peltier, and she's an author. She um, she had overcame um, an extreme adversity when she was a child. Um, she was COO by the age of 24. Um, she was president by the age of 35. CEO by 41. Wow. And she's a board director, entrepreneur, author, and public speaker. Hi, Victoria. Welcome. Hi, thanks, Abby. Happy to be here. <laughs> wow. You you sound really well accomplished. Wow. Oh, okay. Well, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so let's take it back to before your accomplishments. Like when you were a child, you said you were born to a drug addicted teenage mother. So how did you even know that she was addicted to drugs? Because most times kids don't know what's happening, right? So how did you even know that she was addicted? And um, do you know her story as to why she became addicted to drugs? So I know because I was in and out of the child welfare system um, due to her, her physical abuse of me. And then she ended up meeting a couple that would eventually become my adoptive parents. Uh, mm. After, un, you know, tons of abuse, they would often, um, Julie is my biological mother's name. She would, she would send me to my parents as she sort of cooled down, if you will. And after this happened a number of times, my Later, um, um, to become parents said, you know, we'd like to adopt her and take her away from you. And so I was, um, she, she agreed. That's actually one of the most selfless things she could have ever done for me. And so I was raised by this couple that, um, that Julie had known. And so it was through not only my parents' knowledge of her background, but I later, um, got to learn a lot more about my biological mother's side of the family, 
um, as I um, reconnected with my grandmother and some aunts when I was, you know, from not all of them, some starting at 11, all the way up to like the, the time I was in my 20s, met the rest of that family. So I got to understand more of Julie's poor habits. My grandmother, um, at her, I think her way of apologizing to me for all that happened and, you know, not even, even she was aware of the abuse and didn't take me out of it was to acknowledge she herself wasn't a great parent and Julie had suffered, you know, lots of challenges in the household. So I think that's why she likely had turned to, you know, drugs and alcohol. And interestingly, um, she and my adoptive mother passed away within months of one another. And Julie passed away from, from complication of AIDS, uh, from a, you know, a result of her drug use. Oh my goodness. I'm so sorry to hear that. Um, I can kind of, because my birth mother, um, died of H, um, AIDS also, but not from drugs, but from, you know, the, the other part of it, <laughs> the sexual part of it, where, um, her husband at the time, I guess, stepped out, um, caught the disease, then came back and gave it to my mother. He died like, maybe a year or two after he caught the disease. But then my mother got to live like 18 years after that. And then um, in 2018, I guess, you know, um, the AIDS uh, happened. Her body couldn't take it anymore and she died from it. So Mm -hmm. I I could sympathize and um, sorry that happened to you. Yeah. And then, um, okay, so you said that um, you were raped during when you were a teenager. Um, when, like, what happened with that? Well, so I am, um, I, I'm actually really fortunate, despite the you know upbringing of my mother. I one would say you know she wasn't very smart to go down the path of drugs and alcohol, but it can um, you know happen to. Uh, I guess even the best of us. And I say that because somehow I ended up being like getting some, a little bit of smarts. And so I did quite well in school and ended up skipping a couple of grades. So at 14, I entered um, high school in Canada where most um, entering are about 16 years old. So I was younger than everyone else. I also was, um, I always, I looked older. I'm, I'm five foot eight and I hit this height by the time I was 11. So I was so mature physically and, and, and in many ways, both emotionally given kind of my early years, I presented much older and I had, a I just started dating a senior, um, an 18 year old who, you know, we went out and then, you know, he came back to my home and my parents weren't there, um, and started to kiss. And then when I said, no, like I wasn't looking to take it any further, unfortunately, um, he raped me and, mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think there's no victim shaming at all, but I will tell you, I, um, you know, I think I put myself in a lot of situations when I was younger and particularly with the people I was dating because I associated their affection for me as being liked and loved and accepted. And so I put myself in sometimes precarious situations. So again, there's no, I don't bear, I don't feel like I'm at fault for what happened with him, but I sort of, Mm -hmm. as I reflect back on many instances over my lives, my lifetime, I kind of reflect on what could I have done, do better or different in future. Uh, I, so- mm, I, I I can I can relate because um, you were young at that time, so you can't. I know it's easy to blame yourself and be like, you know, I should have done this differently, done that differently. But then, 
when you're at that age, you don't really know what you're doing, right? Because you're still a child. So um, if you've blamed yourself before, please don't because it's, because even me, I've been through a lot of stuff when I was a child, a teenager. So many stupid things I did. I'm just like, why did I do those things? <laughs> you know? So it's yeah. like, yeah, it's just a, a, a part of growing up, you know? Like, that's just the way life is sometimes. And then, unfortunately, bad things could happen. And um, it's just, a, we just have to find our way forward and, and you know, forgive ourselves for making those decisions, even though it wasn't our fault. So yeah. I, I could understand. Yeah. So how did you, um, how did you overcome the, the significant obstacles that you went through to be able to be a success that you are today? I think, you, you know, we all have choice in regards to, um, although not always controls, we're not always in control of you know, the challenges, obstacles, or trauma that might happen to us. But I do believe we have choice. Um, and it probably drives my my children nuts that I often talk about. No excuses. And that what I mean by that is when something happens to us, you know, that we were either in control of or not. What we have the ability to choose is how react we react, we respond, and move forward. And so for me, I my it's funny, my adoptive mother um said to me, I think it was maybe like 10 or 11, she said, Tori, you need to do better than us. And she meant socioeconomically because they were, you know, lower middle class, bordering on low class, um, lower um, uh, class that my dad was a janitor, my mom a secretary. So there wasn't a lot of money in our household, never been able to go on really on vacations. I never even went on my school trips, but she said that to me, be, be better than us. And she meant vocationally from an education standpoint, you know, likely earn more money is what she meant. But for me, I think I was determined well before she said any of that to be better than the biology, you know, the Julie's family that I'd been born into, and then the socioeconomic conditions uh, that I was raised in. And I wanted, you know, my choice was to do better, to be better than all of those things, both as it related to being a parent I myself. I wanted to make sure that when I had children, and I have two, that I raised them better than I, you know, I had experienced personally. And also from a vocational standpoint, I did want to do better. I felt like I had something to prove to the world. And looking back on it, you don't, no one has to prove anything to anyone but themselves. But I had this mindset that I needed to prove it, that I was bet, I was better than that. I had earned the right to, you know, for people to look up to me. And it's funny because it manifested in ways where one, I could control from a work perspective. I started working at 11 by 14. I was like the assistant manager in the shoe store I worked at. And then I continued to grow from there to become, as you read in my bio at age 24, a COO, but work for me, that was a place I had control. I could control my work ethic. I could control what skills I learned to do better at work. And so that's how I progressed higher and higher up the corporate ladder. But I also thought I had to have things, material possessions to prove something. And at some point, I think it was in my 30s, I realized like that that really doesn't mean anything. What means more to me is around, you know, the the way I lead in business, the way I engage in my community and hopefully lift others, you know, as I rise. Mm, that that is profound that you figured out that even though you know you tried to because the reason why you were going hard at work is because you you have control over that 
So you want to maintain control. You want to prove that, you know, I'm the best at this. I can do better, you know, no matter what my past has done to me, I'm not going to let that determine how my future is. So because of that, you poured everything into your work and, and luckily you were able to be successful in that, which is really, really amazing. And then also you figured out that, okay, that's not my work and my material stuff is not everything in life. And you figure it out that, you know, it's all about overall mindset, right? Like, yes, you can want material stuff. Yes, you can be an overachiever, whatever. But at least you know that at the end of the day, it's about friends, family, your emotional health and, and things like that, that matters. So that's, that's pretty amazing. So can you talk more about like your leadership, executive journey and career? So you said you were um, COO by the age of 24. So how did you even, how did you get there? You know, cause that's pretty amazing to be <laughs> that at that age. Yeah, I am. Um, so I, I've already shared, I started working at a very yes. young age and mm-hmm. I moved into sort of atypical roles for, for a teenager. So I held multiple roles. I actually, most of my life, I've always had, you know, multiple jobs or, and even when I'm as a corporate executive, I've almost always had a side hustle. Um, and, uh, and so in my teenage years, I, one, worked for a doctor's office and grew to sort of manage and make sure all of the, he had six or seven different practices and I made sure all the, the doctors got paid. I was, you know, their guru from a billing perspective. Uh, and then, um, and got to, to be in a little bit of a leadership perspective. And then when I went to university, I was just barely 17. I started working for um, a bank and in their contact center. And within six months, because I'd had this prior experience, I got promoted in, you know, to be a supervisor or manager. I was 17 years old and then continued to progress through the environment. But I also uh, took, you know, my own learning into my hand. So the bank offered a ton, a ton of um, opportunities. And so I started in like doing outbound telemarketing sales. And then I moved into leading that team. And then I moved into the personal banking contact center and then, and then into retail lending. And then into, because I got my securities license into running the discount brokerage sent, um, operations for one of these large banks. And then a recruiter found me because I ticked a few boxes for that COO role. So, and I became COO and um, BPO for short, but it stands for business process outsource, outsourcing. So companies outsource parts of their business, whether it's their help desk, like tech support, it could be sales, it could be customer service. In some cases, they outsource parts of their finance or HR or accounting, whatever. So I joined there and this outsourcing company was almost exclusively contact center based. So I had been running large contact centers And this company also had many banking clients. And again, I had worked for two banks at that point. So I ticked the box and you know, also some strengths I developed from a leadership perspective, but it was a really stretched role for me, Abby. I stepping into that COO role, every function of the organization, except for finance reported to me. So I had to lean into um, my discomfort, quickly try and learn as much as I could, but also surround myself with a great team who knew all the things that I didn't 
and prove that you know they were smarter than me in, in many of those areas and built an amazing diverse team with different corporate experience and you know lived experience. And that's how I was able to be successful in that role. And then that was just kind of my launch pad where I then just progressively you know, took on more and more. I'm not a status quo girl at all. So like I'm the type who's going to break things almost just to mm-hmm. fix them. And so then I just, you know, my, if anyone were to look my, my path up, uh, looking at my LinkedIn profile, you might not think it's linear, but tangentially, the, all of it is connected around this kind of business to business world that I've existed in with just greater and greater complexity and scale um, to, you know, now where I sit you know, today. Wow. That's amazing. So when, <clears throat> When you were leading your team, did you get any pushback from people that have been there for a while? And they're like, oh, why is this young girl here trying to lead us? Did you get any of those at that time? Yeah, for sure. And um, so ta- that that role for me was a bit of imposter syndrome. And it was because I was the only woman. I was the youngest by two decades and the only member of the LGBT community. Uh, so I just I just felt like I was the only person there. I didn't really fit or belong. And on the age piece, I tried to never disclose my age or or talk about things that might lead people to guess how old I was. So I wouldn't talk about the years I graduated or when I went to university. And if I got sort of backed into a corner, I I lied. And this is funny. How many women lie about being older? Um, (laughs) But I I did. Um, And then there was one other time, first time I got relocated to the U.S. from Canada, um, I we the company I worked for at that point had done a number of acquisitions and their the Canadian team was actually larger than the US as we we're going and acquiring. And so I remember coming down and there was this like tough New Yorker who was, you know, in her mid-50s. At that point, I was in my late 20s. And I she just kind of looked at me and I and it was in the world of of travel. I was leading a corporate travel business. And it took a long time, not only because I was 30 years her junior but I also had very limited experience in the travel industry at that point. And so for me, it was showing up every day, making sure that they understood that, you know, our skills and experience can complement one another and also building, you know, taking the, you know, the wall and barrier down and just saying like, this woman's name was Kathy, like Kathy, I'm here to learn from you as much as I might be able to bring some things to the table that can help support you in your role. But in that instance, it took a, a year to finally get her on board. And I think kind of trust and trust me and, and think, okay, like she's not so bad. Mm, wow. <laughs> That's, it, it's amazing that you find your way, you found a way to make things work for you and in your advantage, which is, which is perfect. That's actually amazing. So let's say someone wants to like build their personal brand, right? So what are the steps they need to take to do that? Well, I think foundationally, there are some questions that we need to ask people um, around um, when they're building their brand. And what I would say is for for everyone to think about the brand, much like big corporations invest in marketing around their brand and and think about it as you know some, something that people are, people are going to say about you when you're not in the room. And so when you look at that, that kind of build that um, foundation, I think they need to go through kind of four, ask yourself four questions. One, this is what most people think your brand is, is what is your expertise? So what did you go to school for? What work experience do you have in a particular industry? That can be called your eminence, you know, what you're, what you're known for as it relates to, you know, the 
society, community, or, or work world that you're developing that that brand, uh, that brand foundation for. But then the next part is where I think people aren't um, following through on these steps. The next needs to be, what are you passionate about? People do business or engage with people that they like and they trust. And so the, the, the trust piece comes through being authentic and transparent and building a rapport with people. But your, your passions and your interests can be that initial spark. So again, what brings you joy? You know, what's that legacy you want to you know, lead? The next part in that is what makes you different? So my world of business to business, lots of clients issue a request for proposal, an RFP. And at the end of the day, there's points that go for the quality of, you know, the type of service you might be offering. But lots of time, it just comes down to do- dollars, right? And But at the end of the day, people are going to buy from business that they trust are going to de- deliver the service for their, you know, their customers or their employees. So understand how what makes you different from the others? How do you stand out? And then the last part in that brand brand foundation, I'd say, is what do you want to be known for? And for me, it's not going to be about how many sales, how much revenue or like gross profit I brought in for the companies I worked for. For me, it's much more around that kind of legacy. I want to be known for being a human-centered leader who's really focused on building a strong organizational culture that is diverse, equitable, and inclusive. Those are things I want to you know be known for. And so my brand hovers around all four of those things. And then it's just being really consistent. Um, it's not like you build your LinkedIn profile, set it and forget it. You're constantly on there. You're engaging with people, you know, to be a little bit more intentional with your network and how people see you. Yes, that that's so true. You have to know what you want to be known for, for sure. And what do you want people to remember you for too? That's also uh, something to think about. So let, let's say, um, let's talk about your books, right? How many books do you have? Have you written? Well, I, only one that I have co-authored, although I'm a okay. regular contributor for Forbes, for Fortune, and I do a ton of media work. I do mm-hmm. plan on writing the full length book at some point. I just need to find, you know, the time uh, to get it down on paper. Okay. So you say you co-authored a book. So what's the name of the book and what is it about? How can yeah. people get it? It's called Unstoppable um, Change Makers Who Dare to Make a Difference. And so when I was approached to um, contribute to this book, it was almost a no-brainer for me because Unstoppable is one of is my life philosophy and mantra. I sign most of my social media posts, hashtag unstoppable and hashtag no excuses. So it was a it was perfect for me. Um, the publishers ended up sort of surprising me and felt that my story, my chapter should lead the entire book, which is great. And uh, your listeners can get it directly on my website, which is victoria-peltier.com or um, on Amazon. It was published in Canada, so on the amazon.ca website. That's perfect. So one last question before we go. Um, Let's say someone came from a traumatic past like you have, and um, but they keep letting that past be the the thing that stops them from moving forward in life and achieving their girls goals and going after what they like and want. So uh, what would you tell that person to, so they can, you know, not forget about the past, but at least find a way to move forward because you cannot change the past, right? But you can change the future and you can be in the moment. So what would you tell tell that person? Well, I think, Anyone who's experienced, whether it's trauma or just a very 
challenging or difficult situation, I do think you need to process that. And this to me comes down to that sort of what I said earlier on healthy level of resilience. I don't think I had, I I'd processed the trauma in my youth very well. So for me, I was viewed as being exceptionally resilient. Funny enough, my best friend calls me turtle hard shell. I can, I can stand a lot, but I'm actually all marshmallow inside. So what I did is I had these walls up around me. I'm like, I would push people away before they could hurt me or reject me. And that's not healthy. So I would tell your audience, you need to, you need to process that. And that means feel the emotion, the experience, um, and, you know, not feel guilty about it, but rather focus on where do you want to get to? And and I say, where do you want to get to? It can be a professional goal. It can be personal around, you know, I want to lose weight or um, I want to be known for doing something, or I want to build this side business, whatever it is, whatever your goal or objective is, like be really clear. And for some people, they need to write it down or put it on a vision board. I don't, it's crystal clear in my mind, but then start to model the actions that need to be taken to move towards that. And in some cases, um, if it's a traumatic situation, you also need to um, model the thinking and the language that you say to yourself and then get comfortable with failure because, you know, we're all, we're imperfect. Uh, we're perfect in our imperfection, they say. And so we're going to stumble sometimes, but again, pick yourself back up and focus back on the prize, you know, the goal or objective you have and, and then just one foot in front of the other. Perfect. Thank you for that. Um, Thank you so much. Those are great, great tips. And thank you for coming on. And I hope you have a lovely day. <laughs> Appreciate it. Thank you. Big, big thank you to our guest for, um, for today. And if you would like to learn more about today's topic, please go on howtosurvivesociety.com. There you can get um, some life skills courses and some merchandise. And um, contact me if you would like to be a guest on the show. So thank you so much for tuning in and have yourself a lovely day. Today is a great day to start your own podcast. Whether you're looking for a new marketing channel, have a message you want to share with the world, or just think it would be fun to have your own talk show, podcasting is an easy, inexpensive, and fun way to expand your reach online. Buzzsprout is hands down the easiest and best way to launch, promote, and track your podcast. Your show can be online and listed in all the major podcast directories like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, and more within minutes of finishing your recording. Podcasting isn't hard when you have the right partners, and the team at Buzzsprout is passionate about helping you succeed. Join over 100,000 podcasters already using Buzzsprout to get their message out to the world. Let's create something great together. So if you ever need help to start your own podcast, reach out to me. And then you know what you can do also? You know, you can follow the link in the show notes, in the show notes that lets Buzzsprout know that Hi sent you so you can get a $20 Amazon gift card when you sign up for a paid plan and you can also support the show that way. So yeah, so if you're looking to start your own podcast, reach out to me, follow the link under the notes show and you'll be able to sign up and get a $20 Amazon card. Yeah.